The Stream of Time. Hello. Welcome back to the history podcast, The Stream of Time. I'm your history host, Elliot the Historian. This episode will be concluding the story we began last episode, The Headless Demon. Last episode, we began the story of the reign of Justinian. We talked about the geopolitical situation in Europe at the time leading up to his reign. We talked about how he used political parties at the time to work his way up to the top. And we talked about how that blew up in his face with the Nika riots. If you zoomed out a bit, you'd see that we are still early in Justinian's very long reign of 527 to 565 AD. We stopped roughly at the Nika riots, and those took place in 532, a mere five years into Justinian's 38-year reign. This episode, we're going to go much further into his reign, but before we do, we're going to take a step back in order to talk about an old foe of the Roman Empire. If you heard episodes 1 and 2, you might remember the Sassanids. Don't worry if you haven't, because I'm going to give you a refresher. As the Roman Empire grew towards the east, they bumped up against another empire, the Parthians. This group of horse archers tended to be nomadic, and while they had capitals, the capitals tended to be temporary places to stay for certain parts of the year, or for tax collecting. The Parthians didn't like to settle down. The Parthians also weren't Persian, despite the similarity in name. They had displaced the previous Persian Achaemenid Empire and maintained control of the area for several hundred years, until the 3rd century AD. The 3rd century AD was a disruptive century not just for the Roman Empire, but for the Parthians as well. In the early 3rd century, the Parthians were conquered by a people that were actually Persian. These people and their empire came to be known as the Sassanid or Sasanian Empire, and were much more organized and inclined to settle than the Parthians. Simply put, they were far more dangerous to the Romans than the Parthians ever were. Where the Parthians would have been considered an annoyance, the Sassanids were at times a genuine existential threat to the Roman Empire, and would remain so until their complete eradication 400 years later in the 7th century by what at the time was the very new army of Islam. Now, to be fair to the Sassanids, there were periods of friendly diplomacy between the Roman Empire and the Sassanids over those four centuries. So good, in fact, that at one point, one Sassanid Shah, that's Persian for emperor, asked the Roman emperor to adopt his son to help him secure the throne when the Sassanid succession was in question. Still, when relations were bad between the two empires, they were really bad. And when Justinian entered the office of emperor, tensions had bubbled over to the point of war, as they had on many occasions in the past. It is in this context that we now get to talk in detail about one of the most brilliant generals in history, Flavius Belisarius, a man outshined perhaps only by Napoleon Bonaparte, Alexander the Great, Frederick the Great, or Julius Caesar. While Justinian and his uncle Justin were still co-emperoring in 527, they sent out Belisarius to confront the Persians. They were defeated in what ended up being one of very few defeats in Belisarius's long military career. Again, I want to emphasize that the Sassanids were a serious threat. Since the two empires bordered each other, military losses often meant loss of territory in the empire as borders would change back and forth depending on who had the upper hand. After two years of what ended up being failed negotiations between the two empires, the Sassanid Shah Kavad I sent out an army of 40,000 soldiers 
headed towards the Byzantine fortress of Dara, which lies in modern-day southeastern Turkey. Justinian responded by sending Belisarius with an army of 25,000. And Kavad responded to that by sending another 10,000 soldiers to reinforce the original 40,000. So by the time the two forces met at the fortress of Dara in 530 AD, Belisarius was outnumbered 2 to 1. If you listened to last episode, you might remember our old friend Procopius, the historian who told us that our titular emperor is, in fact, a headless demon. Early in the reign of Justinian, Procopius was made a legal advisor of sorts to the general Belisarius. The job was called Edsessor, and it meant that Procopius accompanied Belisarius on many of his military exploits and was therefore first-hand witness to many of these battles. So for the most part, we can trust his accounts to be pretty solid and correct. Nevertheless, historians of antiquity were prone to err on the side of narrative structure rather than actual factual authenticity. I'm telling you this because I'm going to relay Procopius's version of the battle. But while he may have embellished a bit here and there, and might have the order of some minor events wrong, he gets the general structure correct. And of course, narratively it's more fun anyway. Okay, so back to the Battle of Dara. On the first day that all the combatants were lined up on their respective sides, there was no general fighting. Instead, there were a series of one-on-one -on -one spectacle combats between individuals from each side. Basically, a bunch of wrestling matches. As actual real battle had not broken out yet, after this first day, Belisarius sent a letter to the Persian general in the hopes of avoiding a battle altogether. In it, Belisarius entreated, the first blessing is peace, as is agreed by all men who have even a small share of reason. The best general, therefore, is that one which is able to bring about peace from war. The letter obviously didn't work, since we're still talking about the Battle of Dara. It's difficult to describe a battle without pictures. And as a reminder, you can find companion information, such as maps and pictures, on the Stream of Time website, www.streamoftime.org. But there are some major beats in the battle that we can capture to illustrate Belisarius's unique military genius. The two forces faced each other on opposite sides of the battlefield. As I mentioned, Belisarius was outnumbered by two to one. The Persian forces were arrayed in two lines, the long part facing the Byzantine forces. At each end of each line was the Persian cavalry. Cavalry is a fancy way of saying soldiers on horses. This was a fairly standard formation in ancient battle. The two lines deep meant that if one line of soldiers started to crumble, they could still be reinforced by the rear line. The cavalry was put on the edges so it would have freedom to use its main advantage, which was speed and the power that comes from the momentum of speed. A good cavalry can have multiple uses, including being able to support foot soldiers on a situation that goes bad, or charge an enemy to divide an enemy line, or create an opening which can be exploited. Belisarius negated this advantage very simply. He didn't have the manpower to have his forces two lines deep as the Persians did, so he created a different kind of line. He had his men dig a series of deep and wide trenches that sat in front of his own line of soldiers. This meant that the Persians could not simply order their cavalry to charge a Byzantine lines, since they would end up falling into the trenches. The Persians also couldn't surround Belisarius, because at his back was the fortress of Dara itself. Furthermore, 
He made his line longer and more dangerous by forming it into a rectangular U-shape, with the trough of the U facing his side of the battle line. This would mean that any attempt by the Persians to charge the center of Belisarius's line would find them almost surrounded by Belisarius's soldiers. The 19th century German general, Helmut von Moltke, famously said, No plan survives first contact with the enemy. And while this is true, it's also true that the right preparation can easily be the deciding factor between victory and defeat. In the case of the Battle of Dara, it meant victory for the Byzantines. The Persians tried to push through the lines and even managed to break through the ditches that Belisarius had ordered to be set up. But in the end, the preparations and ferocity of his soldiers, which included Hun mercenaries, remember I mentioned Byzantine diplomacy last episode would often mean former enemies became allies, secured a victory for the Byzantine forces. This unfortunately didn't put an end to the war, but it put the Roman Empire in a better position to negotiate. While there would be another battle with the Persians that the Romans lost, the battle was costly to the Persians, and the two sides eventually agreed for peace as long as the Romans would pay tribute to the Persians. Justinian most likely agreed to this fairly one-sided deal because it allowed him to focus in the direction in which his interests truly lied, the West. More specifically, the lost lands of the West. Justinian sent his loyal general back out on campaign in 533 AD. The first stop was North Africa. You may remember from last episode that the Germanic tribe of the Vandals had crossed the Mediterranean and conquered the Roman lands of North Africa. By this time, a century later, the Vandal kingdom encompassed not only part of North Africa, modern-day Tunisia and pieces of Libya and Algeria, but they had also incorporated the islands of Sardinia and Corsica into their kingdom, as well as some other islands close to modern-day Spain. Unfortunately for the Vandals, they weren't very well organized and had internal political problems. The usual fights for succession to the throne that derailed so many kingdoms throughout history. Belisarius made short work of the Vandals because of his brilliant military acumen, and by the end of 534, all of the former Vandal kingdom was now back under Roman control. An interesting footnote to this period is that when Belisarius came back to Constantinople, he was given a Roman triumph. The triumph was a celebration and parade that was dedicated to a general for some specific military action or other. Julius Caesar, for example, was given a triumph for his conquering of Gaul and defeat of the Gallic ruler Vercingetorix. Belisarius's triumph is notable both because it had been over a century since a Roman general had been given a triumph. In fact, at certain periods, a triumph had been banned by emperors fearful of generals becoming too popular and stealing the throne. But possibly more importantly, Belisarius's triumph would be the last Roman triumph ever held. In 535, Belisarius was back on campaign. This time it would be to regain the most symbolically important territory yet, the Italian peninsula, upon which sat the eternal city of Rome itself. This area was under control of the Germanic tribe of the Ostrogoths. This became known as the Gothic Wars. The Gothic Wars dragged on for 19 years, from 535 to 554 for reasons I'll get into in a moment. I could do a whole episode on the Gothic Wars alone, and someday I might do that. But for the scope of this episode, I'm going to hit the high points, or low points, depending on how you look at them. And if you lived in the Roman Empire at the time, you probably saw them as low points. 
Belisarius made his way from the southern end of the Italian peninsula northward towards Rome, which is about halfway up the peninsula. He initially had a strong advancement into the peninsula. By 536, his forces reached a relatively undefended Rome and entered. It's probably around this time that Justinian began to worry about the loyalty of his general Belisarius. We have the benefit of hindsight. There is nothing now to indicate that Belisarius was anything but fiercely loyal to Justinian and the Roman Empire. But from Justinian's point of view, way back in Constantinople, he saw a brilliant, charismatic general making huge advancements at a distance that was out of Justinian's control altogether. If you've heard any of the previous episodes of The Stream of Time, then you know that there was plenty of precedent for charismatic generals taking power, so it's understandable that Justinian began to worry. I'm pointing this out because it seems that Justinian kind of waffled on his support for Belisarius at this point. He never quite gave Belisarius the reinforcements that he asked for, and consequently from this point forward, Belisarius would often be fighting with a much smaller army than he needed to accomplish his goals. The fact that he didn't have enough soldiers to fully defend Rome didn't seem to stop him from successfully defending Rome. He was a dynamic general, and often went out on sallies to attack the Ostrogoths or to repel an Ostrogothic attack. And not only did he need to defend Rome, but he needed to defend areas that he had already taken when marching through the Italian peninsula. The fact that some of his men refused orders didn't help matters, and some towns that had been conquered by the Romans ended up falling back into the hands of the Goths, such as the town of Riminum, which is the modern-day Italian city of Rimini. Again, I'm glossing over a lot of details, but you get the idea here. Things were not going so easily in the Gothic Wars as they had with the Vandal Wars, and not the least reason being diminished support from Justinian. Justinian finally did send a larger force to reinforce Belisarius, but this force had its own general guiding it. You might remember the advisor and General Narses from the section on the Nika riots last episode. What you might have missed when I mentioned him was that he was a eunuch, as a eunuch, Narses was unable to have children. If he was unable to have children, he was unable to establish a dynasty. If he was unable to establish a dynasty, he would have no reason to overthrow an emperor. So now you know why eunuchs were often favored as advisors and trusted men. And this is why Justinian sent Narses out with his own force. The two generals disagreed on a strategy, but nevertheless, after two more years of battles and difficulty, Belisarius entered Ravenna, which was where the Goth leadership had concentrated. At this point, Belisarius did something that no doubt didn't help his image in the eyes of Justinian. Justinian pushed for a deal with the Goths in which the Goths would be allowed to keep some of the area of southern Italy in return for surrendering. Even though the Goths were ready to accept this deal, Belisarius felt this was a betrayal of all that he had fought hard for and killed the deal. The Goths, no doubt getting desperate, offered for Belisarius to become the king of Italy, which again must have infuriated Justinian. But Belisarius refused, again proving his loyalty to the emperor. For the most part, things were looking good as the Goths had good faith, but secret negotiations going on with Justinian in trying to incorporate these former lands back. Since they were secret, some factions of the Goths had their own ideas and put their own king back on the throne, a man named Totila. Under normal circumstances, this very likely wouldn't have been a problem since at this point, there were two Roman armies on the Italian peninsula. 
The years 541 to 542 ended up being anything but normal circumstances. When we think of massively destructive plagues in Europe, we obviously go straight to the 14th century Black Plague. The Black Plague was caused by a strain of bacteria called Yersinia pestis, or Y. pestis. But the 14th century was not the first time Yersinia pestis would ravage Europe. In 541, the plague hit the Roman Empire. In a huge concentrated city such as Constantinople, the devastating effects can't even be calculated. Procopius tells us that, at the height of the plague, 10,000 people a day lost their lives to the disease, that the entire city smelled of death, and that they ran out of space to even bury the bodies, resorting to desperate measures such as stuffing bodies in towers that were meant for defense. Even Justinian seems to have contracted the bubonic form of the disease and survived, the bubonic form being deadly, but less deadly than the 100% fatal pneumonic form of the plague. It would have been a perfect time for the Roman Empire's enemies to take advantage of a far weakened empire, except that the plague affected everyone. So while this dragged on the Gothic Wars far longer than necessary, until 554, as I mentioned earlier, it also meant that an empire such as the Sassanids was unable to mount an effective attack against the Romans, as they were weakened by the plague as well. Still, with modern estimates of 40% of the population of Constantinople dead, and similar statistics in the countryside, the trajectory of the Roman Empire changed forever, and while Rome did manage to gain the Italian peninsula, it wasn't able to hold on to it for long, and it was far more costly than it could have been given the effects of the plague. You could almost say that the high watermark of the Roman Empire hit in 540. Okay, that might be oversimplifying it a bit since the empire survived another 900 years, but as I'll point out in a moment, things changed after this. Before I wrap up this two-part episode and subject, I want to address a rumor about the fate of Belisarius. The popular story is that Justinian had Belisarius blinded and exiled. While blinding did eventually become a common quote-unquote humane method of dealing with threats to the Byzantine throne, the idea that Justinian had Belisarius blinded is almost certainly untrue for a few reasons. First of all, there are other instances in Justinian's reign in which there was far more evidence of a crime against the throne, and in which he ended up giving far more lenient sentences. For instance, when his Praetorian prefect, John the Cappadocian, was caught in a sting operation by Justinian's wife Theodora and Belisarius's wife Antonina, Justinian had him exiled, not blinded. Okay, he was beaten too, but still, he wasn't blinded, and he was allowed to live out his days in peace. Second of all, Belisarius would be recalled toward the end of Justinian's reign to defend Constantinople against the Bulgars. It would have been very difficult for Belisarius to mount the effective defense that he did if he was blind. Furthermore, it would have been strange for Justinian to recall a blind general when he had other generals at his disposal. Lastly, the idea that Belisarius was blinded was very likely put forward in the Middle Ages, but popularized in the modern times by Robert Graves. Wait, who is Robert Graves? If you've ever seen the wonderful BBC miniseries I, Claudius, then you have been exposed to his work. Graves wrote the book upon which the miniseries is based. He also wrote a historical novel based on Belisarius called Count Belisarius. Spoiler alert, in Graves' novel, Justinian has Belisarius blinded for narrative reasons that Graves unfortunately took to his grave. I say unfortunate 
because this is a narrative that seems to have entered the popular consciousness. So Belisarius was very likely exiled and fired from his position as general, but no more than that. He most likely lived out the rest of his life in relative peace, save for the aforementioned defense against the Bulgars. And as if to underscore how inextricably linked these two men's lives were, Justinian and Belisarius both died within months of each other, in the year 565 AD. As we close up this chapter in history, and this two-part episode, I want to zoom out a bit to look at the bigger picture of Justinian, and why this period is so fascinating and so important in the history of Western civilization. Justinian was the last Roman emperor whose native language was Latin. While there would be emperors after Justinian who spoke Latin as a second language, the Eastern Roman emperors following Justinian would speak Greek as a native language. This serves as a wonderful metaphor for Justinian's reign as a whole. Justinian is one of those few people in history who not only stood upon, but represented a cusp, a pointed end where two curves meet. He built lasting structures, both physical, such as the Church of the Hagia Sophia that still stands in Istanbul today as a Hagia Sophia, and metaphorical, such as the Corpus Juris Civilis Law Code that still influences modern-day law. But the Eastern Roman Empire, which we more popularly know as the Byzantine Empire, would start to undergo a change after Justinian. The empire stopped looking towards the lost west longingly and started to contract. By the end of the reign of the Emperor Heraclius, who was emperor from 610 to 641, the empire would start to take the shape that it would have for centuries, almost implicitly understanding that it could only control so much territory surrounding Constantinople. Even as they called themselves the Empire of the Romans, they did so in Greek, Basileia ton Romaion. And when Constantinople fell to the Ottoman Turks on May 29, 1453, it was almost fitting that, just as it was a man named Constantine that founded the city, Constantine the Great, it was another Constantine, Constantine the Eleventh Paleologus, who gave his life defending it until the end, and who was the last true Roman emperor.